All right, this is Dark Days Radio coming at you with a very special episode. I'm one of your hosts, Mike, and tonight I'm joined by Crystal. How's it going, Crystal? Uh, middle of a snowstorm. Wonderful. Oh, geez. Well, thank you for uh, taking the time to record and s- when you could be out there shoveling and doing fun stuff like that, making snow angels. I've been watching the kids play outside, and uh, thankfully I live in an apartment complex, so someone else does the shoveling for me. Oh, nice. And also joining us is Chig. How's it going, Chig? Pretty great. Uh, it's 55 and sunny here in uh, north central Texas, so uh <laughs> hate it for you guys who have that snow thing, but... Uh... Better you than me. And also joining us is Brandon Ayton from Wet Ink Games. How's it going, Brandon? Hey, it's uh, pretty great. I'm down here in Louisville, Kentucky, and uh, right now it's just cold and rainy. We don't have any of that snow that Crystal has. Nice, nice. Yeah, I'm also in a situation where we are about to have a snowstorm, but it's kind of, you know, the calm before the storm. So we'll see what happens. So, Brandon, very excited to have you here because we're going to be talking about the uh, ongoing Kickstarter for Never Going Home regarding the campaign dossiers. Uh, Really cool game. Really excited to talk about it. And yeah, I think we're just going to have a great episode talking about your work, uh, your company's work and all that good stuff. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's a joy to be here. And uh, I'm really glad to tell you pretty much anything and everything you want to know about Never Going Home and Wedding Games. Cool. So before we get to uh, talking about the ongoing Kickstarter, let's uh, just cover a little bit of gaming news. All right. So obviously, uh, big news is, of course, the Never Going Home campaign dossiers Kickstarter, which is currently on Kickstarter until February 9th. Uh, Very exciting. We're going to be talking about that a bit here on the show. But, uh, Brandon, do you want to give just like a, the briefest 30-second rundown on you know, what people can expect from this Kickstarter and uh, why it's so exciting? Absolutely. Uh, so Never Going Home was uh, it's Eldritch Horror in the Trenches of World War One. This particular campaign is uh, focusing on these campaign dossiers. So the role-playing game is very mission-driven. And one of the things that we've had people ask about regularly are well can i play a campaign with my game group um and so all of these missions are pretty much you know you can you can fit them in however you want arrange them however you want with the campaign dossiers we're actually exploring different areas uh different theaters of war during the world war one so uh it's the battle of gallipoli the the russian revolution which was happening at that time and then some missions in the north sea um and these are all connected serialized missions so you can go through play all six missions in each book beginning to end what happens in mission two might affect what happens in mission five or something that happens in mission five affects the outcome of the final mission or the uh, the big adversary in mission six something like that Mm -hmm. Uh, we also wanted to make sure that we included um, some additional player options so there's a there's a lot for anyone who's uh, ever interested in um world war one or horror uh and it's just it, the campaign is going to be uh, a lot of fun we're going real going real strong right now nice awesome to hear awesome to hear and for other gaming news um you know back in the uh, the horror verse we also have uh vampire physicians fall of london book up for pre-order from Modiphius entertainment pretty cool uh, Darker Days Publishing recently put out this Secret Frequency Files, which is a collection of um, different Chronicles of Darkness themed adaptations of real world myths 
and legends to be used in your Chronicles of Darkness games. And that can be found in the Storyteller's Vault. Also, kind of a really cool big announcement is that uh, Chris, our very own uh, host, is going to be at the uh, Swansea Comics and Games Convention. Uh, he's going to be there with Howard Ingham and uh, also Matthew Dawkins uh, as one of the special guests, just covering a lot of cool gaming stuff at that convention. I also will be at uh, PAX East coming up. Uh, I will be demoing some horror games. I'm not sure if everything's finalized with this, so expect more information later on uh, you know, the specifics of what games will be run and what's going on. For other convention stuff coming up, uh, Chig, do you think you're going to go to Gen Con 2020? That's the plan, yes, sir. All right, good. Well, uh, really excited to have you there. And uh, I know that uh, Gehenna Gaming was uh, asking after you about maybe running some stuff and doing some demoing. So, of course, we'll have to talk about that behind the scenes and figure it out. But uh, yeah, yeah definitely a lot of definitely a lot of cool stuff coming up. Uh, Crystal, are there any conventions or anything else that you'd like to highlight uh, coming up? Or maybe a convention that happened last week that you might just want to highlight real quick. <laughs> um, I was actually at Midwinter Gaming um, Convention last week in Milwaukee and was hanging out with the Gehenna Gaming guys, um, running workshops on networking in the industry and also freelancing in the industry, um, talking about PIP system and how to convert your game to the PIP system and running... Um, our next game that's coming out for pip system which is kids guide to monster hunting and i was also working with onyx path i and um <laughs> on a couple of panels with them i was at the q a um talked about chicago by night um and got to to share some of my uh inspirations for what i put into my portions for chicago by night Crystal, did you get to run Monarchies of Mao this time? I didn't. I no. I was kind of <laughs> sad about that. Um, but I also wasn't like inundated with um, running Chicago by Night either. So I mean, there's uh, you know there is that I got to run Pip System, which I don't normally do at conventions a ton. I generally keep that to Gen Con and um, Midwinter. So um, I, getting to run that is always a lot of fun and introducing that game to new um, players. Um, a whole bunch of kids came and played and <laughs> I had nine kids at a table at one point. So it was chaos. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> nice. And I guess uh, while we're on the topic, uh, Brandon, is uh, Wedding Games going to be at any conventions in the near future? Anything you want to highlight? Yeah, absolutely. So Wedding Games, we're based out of Louisville, Kentucky, and so we're going to be going to a local convention. This is actually their last year. It's called Conglomeration, and it's been going on for about 20 years. And uh, uh, we're going to try to send them out with a with a bang. Um, it's, a, it's a great local con. It's been growing and it's been going strong, but the convention coordinator... Uh, and the team that normally uh, is really behind it, um, they have to kind of phase it out. They're taking a step back and doing more stuff in their personal lives. But we're going to be a con conglomeration. As I said, we're going to try to end that strong. Um, we are planning on having uh, representation for Wet Ink Games at Origins, uh, probably through the uh, Indie Game Developers Network. So if you want to pick up any of our stuff, it'll probably be at the uh, IGDN booth at Origins will be at Gen Con and have a really strong presence at Gen Con, especially when it comes to 
our never going home and the campaign dossiers because they'll we'll have those all at Gen Con uh, if everything goes according to plan. And then um, we're going to be having a presence at PAX Unplugged. Um, and we'll probably try to do a couple other small regional or local conventions as we go forward. But that's those are the major ones on our radar right now. Cool. Really awesome that you're helping out with a local convention. And uh, yeah, sounds like you got a lot of great plans. Yeah, thanks. And with that, uh, I think it's time to move on over to our main segment, talking about wedding games and Brandon Ayton's gaming career. All right, Brandon. So you've made it. You're, you're on the potosphere, talking about your career, talking about your company. But let's go back and let's talk about the origin story a little bit. Uh, oh, how man. did you? Yeah, I know. How did you get started with gaming, and uh, how'd you get started with your career? Man, um, I mean, like, like a lot of us, uh, you know, uh, gaming is one of those things that's just kind of in in our DNA, right? We all, you know, find that one element of uh, that one entry point into um, the the nerd circles that we we get into. And uh, mine really started in uh, about sixth grade where um, one of my friends just happened to have the old Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles uh, and Other Strangeness RPG uh, that was by Palladium Books. And that was like my first my first like entry into gaming. And like I still remember my first character. You know, I had this like uh, crazy possum, you know, with an assault rifle and like all this stuff. Like I rem- it was so refreshing because like you know as a kid you play pretend you run around your neighborhood causing trouble and then you're like okay well maybe i probably shouldn't be you know running around throwing rocks and stuff but like you still want to have that storytelling element you kind of long for that as a child and gaming was that for me um and i you know i started there moved on to things like Robotech and I started played the Robotech RPG before I even knew what anime and uh, any of that was a thing. Um, and so, yeah, I got, I played, played Robotech and I was really interested in uh, Battletech at the time. And I was never able to really play it. I would just go to like hobby shops and like, look at the cool miniatures um, of like giant robots and their lasers and missiles and stuff. I'm like, man, this is, this is really cool. Eventually, um, you know, as I went into later in middle school and high school, I was able to find some, uh, some friends who we all kind of like focused on magic, the gathering and other, uh, and other CCGs and stuff at the time. And, uh, we played that, that kind of stuff regularly, um, and talked about, you know, comic books and anime and video games, all kinds of stuff that really just, uh, which built onto my foundation with gaming. And then in college, I was really able to expand my, uh, you know, my gaming into like, now I have a regular gaming group, not just like every few months get together. It's like, no, we played like three or four times a week. You know, we, we would stay on campus and go wherever we, we needed to go and um, find any kind of open room we could in the library or, anywhere really and chuck some dice and we to the point where we were even playing with like faculty members of the university like we were had a very strong presence and that was really cool um and in 2004 i uh had 
was able to go to Origins because at that time I was an ambassador for WizKids and had been uh, running Mech Warrior Dark Ages for a number of different uh, comic book shops and places all around Louisville. And uh, at Origins, I was like, okay, well, I'm going to go, I'm going to work for WizKids, uh, and I'm going to, uh, you know, run games for them, try to, you know, get my badge for comps and stuff like that. And then, um, you know, I'll, I'm going to pick up some of the the cool things that, that I, uh, you know, that, that they had there for convention exclusives. Like they had this big giant Galactus figure for hero clicks. And I was like, yeah, I'm totally going to get that. And it ends up that one of the, the people at Palladium, and like I said, that's where I cut my teeth playing games. You know, I, I got to meet him earlier in the weekend on to the Palladium booth and he was like, oh, you're doing stuff for WizKids. Well, you know, after the convention, come over here and we'll see if we can, you know, we can uh, organize a trade or something. Well, ended up that guy was Wayne Smith, who's one of the editors of uh, of Palladium. And I uh, ended up, uh, I was getting ready to leave. I was exhausted. I was just going to go home. I was probably hung over. And uh, my buddy comes running out of the convention center. And he's like, dude, Wayne Smith is looking for you. And I was like, oh, I didn't know that guy even like remembered me from meeting me on Thursday, but like, okay. So we get out of the car and I, you know, take the, some stuff in there and I'm talking to Wayne about this stuff and about the, these, this trade and Kevin Sambita, who like I kind of idolized as a kid, I knew his name, saw it in riffs and Robotech and heroes unlimited and teenage mutant Ninja turtles. Like I knew who this, this guy was. Um, and he was like, oh, hey, you know, th these figures look really cool. Man, it'd be really cool if I, I could have gotten my hands on one of those Galactus figures. That was neat. And I was like, well, I have one in the trunk. And at that time, like, I had sold my entire collection of, of RPG books. Like, all my D&D &D books I'd sold. I'd sold all my Palladium stuff um, because, you know, poor college student. I was trying to pay for a, a trip to Mexico, obviously, you know. It's for a girl that one of those, you know, sob stories of, that people have. And so Kevin was like, I mean, I'll give you product in exchange for it. And he gave me probably about a thousand dollars of product, like books I never even knew existed. And I left with like four boxes. We filled up the trunk of the car with Palladium product. And at that oh, point, yeah, it was, it was amazing. And at that, like, since that point, I've been a, a personal friend of Kevin Simbita and Wayne Smith and those guys. I did, I've done internships with them. They gave me my, my first break and you know, I was doing uh, some articles and things for the Rifter as early as 2004. And, um, eventually, you know, I, you know, was able to pitch some ideas, say, Hey, this is an idea I have for a book. Um, I've written a number of books for Palladium, a number of books which are still in-house. Uh, and that relationship really led to, you know, maybe some introductions uh, with other people in the gaming industry. Uh, Aloy LaSanta of Third Eye Games. Um, I, I first met him at Gen Con when I was working for Palladium. And I had known Aloy's stuff and he just came up to the Palladium booth and we introduced ourselves and we kind of hit it off. And I've done stuff for Third Eye, uh, and Aloy was very active at one point in the 
uh, Indie Game Developers Network and really helped me uh, and Matt, my uh, business partner and one of my best friends since middle school. He was in those those gaming groups and stuff in college and, uh, and earlier. Um, <clears throat> he really helped us kind of find our niche in the, the indie sphere. And we've worked with a number of indie companies, uh, as I said, Third Eye. We've worked with Nerd Burger Games. We've written stuff for Capers and uh, and other and other games. <clears throat> like um, we've worked with Bloat Games. It's a uh, really large in the OSR community. So it's just that was really where I got my start. And then we were uh, lucky enough to really launch Wet Ink Games, which really started as just like kind of a pipe dream where we said, well, we have these ideas. We've play tested these ideas. We've run these and we know it's possible to, you know, to launch a Kickstarter and get your start. And so uh, we took a chance and we uh, worked with some of the artists and stuff that we had known from uh, working with Palladium and, uh, and some others that we had, we had met, but um, we put out our first, game uh wild skies europa tempest which is anthropomorphic diesel punk in the skies of 1930s europe so if you take like sky captain and the world of tomorrow and disney's tailspin and smash them together it's kind of what you get but you know it all kind of harkens back to that original gaming experience with teenage mutant ninja turtles it's like it's like it still give it scratches that itch for me and that was our first game man and we launched that it was successful and um it's it's really been uh just a growing and learning experience uh with every campaign since man that's that's epic that is an epic story right there i mean really cool to hear about like tmnt being a big inspiration i know chig has uh chig texted me once because he was like looking at all of the after the bomb books and like oh should i get them i mean it could be pretty cool Oh yeah. Like after the bomb, like, so a little bit about that, like after the bomb, <clears throat> especially the, the edition you can get now, that, that edition that you can get now was going to be the second edition of TMNT and the Nickelodeon uh, actually got the, uh, they had bought the rights at that point. And there was, you know, some legal stuff that I'm not privy to. I don't, I'm not, not familiar with, but I know that like, the mechanics and the guts of that book, like if you want to play, you know, TMNT, I mean, that's as, you know, and, and you remember playing that as a kid, that's as close as you can get. And there's some great stuff in there. Uh, that's actually one of the things that that really triggered our development of the setting for Wild Skies, because at that time we said like, well, let's we haven't played. We have never played after the bomb. Let's check it out. But we didn't really care for the after the bomb setting. So at that point, we said, like, well, let's make our own. And so we did. We created all the world information and everything for our own homebrew setting. And then eventually we just wrote our own rule set to go with it. That's yeah. awesome. That's super awesome. Brandon, I got to ask, what is an internship with a gaming company like? Because I've never really heard of that. You know, I've heard of people getting their start, you know, small jobs, that sort of thing. But an internship, that's that's got to be something interesting. Yeah, I was lucky enough to to go up there. I mean, Palladium does this this one convention every few years. They used to do it annually, but they used to do this thing called the Palladium Books Open House, which is like they would open up their offices and their warehouse to gamers, people who know the games or whatever, and you buy your tickets, you come to the warehouse, 
and there's just it's full of tables and uh, games you can sign up for, run, and whatever. And it's just an absolutely awesome experience. Um, people often call it like a, a family reunion, but with people that you like. Um, and I was able to go to that a few times. And uh, when I was in graduate school, uh, living in New Jersey, I mean, there were times where I just had huge chunks of time where I wasn't necessarily going to come back to Kentucky uh, and I had availability. And I asked Kevin, I'm like, hey, you know, is there any opportunity for me to come and learn some of the things that that you have learned about the business, about the industry? Um, what are some of the things that you look for when you're, you know, when you're writing and and things like that? And so I was able to do that uh, twice actually during the uh, the three years I was in New Jersey uh, to go over to Michigan, fly over to Michigan. I um, I stayed there uh, at the Palladium Warehouse and was able to, uh, you know, really work with every single person at the warehouse. I worked directly with Kevin. I worked with, um, I worked with Alex Marcinizen, uh, who's one of those people that has been in the industry for a million years. And I mean, uh, to exaggerate, um, but also we had various artists and writers that would just stop in and just be like, oh, hey, what's going on? Hi, I'm Mark Dudley. And, you know, I'd, I'd followed Mark's work since he had been um, doing anything with Palladium Books. And it was great just to see people just stop in and talk and, and chat. And then we see kind of their brainstorming process, see how they were doing some of their layout at the time. Um, and even, uh, you know, with any internship, there's some kind of some element of grunt work. At one point, um, I was given a, 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 a box of... Um, printed articles and said, okay, like, take a look at these. We've already reviewed them. We'd like you to review them and see what do you see in these? Uh, and if you find anything that you especially like, um, let's talk about it and bring them into the office and we'll have a brainstorming session. And uh, it was really great because at that point I was actually able to reach out and call people who I'm good friends with still today and say, Hey, we saw the submission that you had. Do you want to develop it into a full manuscript? And these are books that have been written and published and were wildly popular. So it was a, a great experience to um, to see how see how the sausage is made, really, and and then see what kind of things I w would want to eventually absorb into our business model as wet ink or things that we say, Oh, well, for the th kind of things that we want to do, this may not be the best process for us, but yeah, it's like, I never would have known if I hadn't been able to experience that. Awesome. That's really cool. So, um, coming from your, you know, gaming history with TMNT and Robotech and stuff like that, what attracted you into horror gaming? This is an excellent question, primarily because I don't really consider myself a horror gamer. Um, like someone on, on Facebook the other day, one of, one of the guys in our like uh, local community said like, okay, you know, it's 2020. It's time for some, you know, nerdy confession times. Like what is something that you, you want to confess about your, your own fandom? And I was like, I have never played call of Cthulhu. And I had, you know, people that I've known for years were like, whoa, what are you talking about? You've never played Call of Cthulhu? Like, we got to fix that. Um, 
and it's not necessarily because I don't think they're they're good settings or anything like that. Um, it's I guess for me one of the things that I had seen I guess at various points in my gaming past was that uh, when I had seen horror gamers, I had not seen good horror gamers. And I'm going to say that with a caveat of like, it's not a moral judgment or anything. It's like, it's bad role-playing, you know, like I see people who just want to get around a table and tell like the goriest hack and slash story, or they want to, you know, just have shock value because, um, you know, that's just their, they, they want to rebel against an establishment or something like that. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Like, don't get me wrong. Rebelling against an establishment. I mean, those are, these are traits that are, can be found in like any story. I just want to make sure that like, when I sit around a table, that's going to be about psychological horror and driving me mad. I want to make sure that it's, it really has that gut wrenching ability that you see in like great horror films. You know, there's, there's always an, an element um, in film of like and a time and a place for like, yeah, I want to go watch a, you know, a splatter fest movie and like, and have at it. And there's times that I, you know, I'll do that in a game or have that in a game. But when it, I, it's just never something that hit the table very often because not a lot of people wanted to do it. Now there's a, uh, there's another local guy who I've written with before. Uh, he actually worked on the first never going home uh, book. He's written monsters uh, and everything. And I know, I knew this guy originally I met him and he was a, uh, an independent film producer uh, and director. And he, you know, he was an amazing storyteller. He wrote a hack of apocalypse world called lonely world. Um, and I was lucky enough for this guy, Taylor white to be in our gaming group. And he, you know, I, I could sit there and I could play in anything run by Taylor White all day, every day, because he's just that amazing and engaging of a storyteller and a writer. So I guess what what really has drawn me more into being able to produce horror games um, is the idea that, um, and I guess we'll talk about this a little later too, is that sometimes humanity is the worst kind of monster. And so even when we talk about world war one and we talk about like, Oh, now there's eldritch horror and there's supernatural stuff going on. It's still the human element, which is the crappiest and the most terrifying. And that's the kind of story that really just make, I really want to lean into like, yeah, there's zombies here, but also that guy over there scares me more than they do. And I, I think that's one of the the fantastic things about Never Going Home, um, which we can also talk about, hit on a little bit later. So then what is your, um, then on the flip side for this question, it would be what what is your attraction to like history gaming? Because you've had, um, you've now written several or produced several books that have a sort of history element to it. And so what draws you to that? So uh, there's a there's a bunch of bunch of things about that, that go into that. Um, first and foremost, uh, Matt, my business partner, is um, probably one of the most uh, learned historical 
minds that I've encountered in gaming, uh, which is saying a lot because especially with our team that we're working with for never going home, um, we have so many people that bring so much to the table, but I mean, Matt was a history major when we were in college. He was also, a, he has a master's in education. So he not only can tell you all about, you know, this one particular historical fact, but he can tell you the context around it and he can make it engaging. So I could sit there at our, at, you know, around our gaming table and, and this regularly happens in that, like after our gaming session, I'll sit here and stay, you know, two extra hours around my, my gaming table and Matt and I'll talk about something that's going on in current affairs. And he's like, ah, oh, this is exactly what happened in 1937 in Bulgaria. And I'm like, what are you, what are you talking about? You know? Um, and it's, um, yeah, he's, he's just a very engaging person when it comes to, when it comes to that, we were able to actually, um, we've taken a lot of the things that we've written in the past. Like we look at wild skies and we look at the Sovietsky source book that he and I wrote for, uh, Palladium books. Um, all of these are, are drawing their inspiration from, um, from the real world. You know, we're able to say like, okay, in this setting, like for example, in riffs in the Sovietsky source book, like if this, this had to occur, then we have to assume that a new Soviet union had to have been created. So from our point right now, uh, in 2020, what has changed and led up to this point. So at that point, it's like speculative fiction. And, uh, with, Wild skies. We were able to say, like, we we got to set our divergence point and say, since this is alternate history, where in our current history in our current timeline, where was everything the same, and at what point were we like, this is the day that everything changes, and so um, with all of our stuff, we not only want it to sound like it's plausible. Because that's the thing that really gives it sells the game. It like it's that's that buy-in. Um, but we wanted to make people who really do know the history either say, I see what you did there, or we want to see have people who don't know the history to say, This is engaging enough that now I want to go read about that event. Um, and so, like for never going home in these campaign dossiers, people don't know about the Battle of Gallipoli. Not a lot of people, like you know, that's not one of those things that really jumps to the forefront when people think about World War One. You know, they might think of trench warfare or the Battle of the Somme or something like that. Um, so, yeah, that's that's one of the things that really draws draws us in there. Also, the fact that Matt's sister, also who's my wife, uh, is probably one of. Um, it, actually, I can say this with authority. She is the person who knows more about world war one than anyone else. I know like she knows the most. She, like I, she absolutely floors me with her knowledge of, of that setting uh, and that timeline and the, yeah, of that period. And uh, they, I mean, they come by it. Honestly, my father-in-law is a, uh, uh, is uh, in ancient languages scholar. Uh, you know, he could sit there and, you know, translate all kinds of, you know, Egyptian documents, like the guy can literally, you know, read and write in hieroglyphics with, with very minimal reference. Like this is the kind of family that they come from. 
and every single one of them has a mind like a steel trap. So, um, yeah, it's like I can't escape that passion and thirst for history, even if I wanted to. That's awesome. That's uh, it's very inspiring as well. Just the uh, you know, the focus that uh, your your co-writers have and co-developers for this uh, project. Yeah, let's move on over to talking about uh, never going home a little bit because um, it's interesting. As you mentioned, Brandon, talking about Wild Skies and um, uh, some of the other games that you've worked on, um, there most of the divergence points happened in the past, but it really feels like the divergence is happening right then and there in uh, Never Going Home. So could we talk a little bit about the setting of this game and kind of get people excited, introduced to it? And uh, yeah, just kind of share that kind of stuff. Never Going Home is, uh, it's Eldritch Horror in the Trenches of World War One, where uh, the original book, if you you know just had the, the base, base book, it lays out um, a little bit of that setting where the Great War is happening, uh, and during the Battle of the Somme, something happens, some mysterious event, which almost causes like a very large explosion. It almost looks like a almost looks like a nuclear blast or some kind of huge boom. And um, at that point, that is when the veil between our world and the the world beyond is um, it's thinned enough that the corruption of that other world starts to leak into ours. Um, and so you still have your, uh, you still have your allied powers, you know, uh, you know, fighting against, um, you know, fighting against the, the Germans and the, the, um, the Prussians, things like that. And you still have this, um, you still have that, the conflict that's going on, except now you're really starting to question, the orders that are coming from leadership, you know, or those orders that are really coming from the military establishment or those orders that are coming from a leader who's starting to maybe hear whispers that are telling them to do something else, which might seem in line with the, the, uh, operations of uh you know of the military or might be maybe that's that step too far and do you really follow those orders um and so you're also trying to uh, go through some missions and uh, maybe your soldiers as you continue to play in your unit maybe you start to hear whispers and you start to give up little bits of your humanity maybe now you can you know have something which we would consider magic but you're giving up a bit of yourself and a bit of your memories in order to uh, to lean into that newfound ability and that newfound strength and how that helps you in the war. So all of that's happening. You know, it's pretty recent and it's it's happening um, pretty much as as you play the game. A lot of the missions that were created uh, for the original Kickstarter campaign, uh, and we have missions in every book. So you know, if you just want to come up with one on your own. Great. You know, we have a lot of resources for people who just want to pick up a book and run right now. Um, but a lot of those missions, you know, you, it's something new, like you haven't seen this, so, you know, this creature before, or you haven't seen like this manifestation of this kind of ability before, or, you know, now weird stuff is just, just happening. And like, you can't tell if it's all real or if it's just in your mind. So, 
and all of our our writers just completely blew us away with uh, their uh, creativity and um, bringing new and different and horrible aspects to these uh, these missions. So, given all that we've heard so far about how this combines one of the most horrific periods in human history with uh, the darkness of uh, evil magic and outside influencers uh, leading actors down uh, dark paths to their own destruction, how did this become uh, one of the most unexpected comedic hits of Gen Con 2019? Could you tell us that story? <laughs> so, when it comes to when it comes to a, a comedic element, I, I'm not sure. I don't know if, if that's uh, something that's that's happened. I've, I haven't heard any of those of those stories. I know that sometimes uh, there are there there have been at least two instances that I know where like we had some ridiculous stories of a of a, a character who who died in, you know, in a. A, a pretty terrible way during one of the sessions. Um, and because character creation and never going home takes five minutes tops, if you know what you're doing, uh, that player immediately rolled up a new character and came back in as I think she called herself Captain Canada. Yeah, I think it was, it was Captain Canada and just came in and just like yes. laid waste. And <laughs> it, which was hilarious in that setting. And, it, it 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 really uh threw it really threw our uh well the the gm for a loop at that point but man uh great great memories and uh great storytelling at that point but uh and you know that that gamer left that table and continued to tell that story but uh i mean heck i'm still telling that story but for the most part like at gen con it was people who were were coming up and saying for example, let me let me let me just start start here. We had someone come up on Friday morning after you know the the main rush of of Thursday and that happens at Gen Con. First thing Friday morning, they ran up to the booth. They ran up to the table, not walked, ran up. They said, "This is the first place I'm, I've been. This is the game that everyone is talking about." They said, "This is the game that everyone is talking about," and I was dumbfounded i was like we didn't bring enough of this game for everyone to be talking about it we i mean and we sold out of everything that we that we brought uh to gen con to the point where like one artist from artist alley came up and we 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 sold him our our demo copy because people had bought everything and i was like people have been touching this and messing with this the whole game or the whole weekend and he's like don't care i'll see you at you know when the convention hall closes so like it was, and, and people were like, I cannot wait to get this to my table and kill all their characters, you know, kill all their characters in a terrible way. And I'm like, yeah, great. As long as you have fun, I don't care. Like you take it and make it your own. You run with it. And people were just absolutely uh, astounded by it. And I, I will say if it wasn't for the art of Charles Ferguson Avery, I would, um, it, it would not be the, the same product. It is a, it's it's done to look and feel as though it is a a journal or an artifact of the period and his art really brings that home that yeah i i have to agree with that because 
I backed the Kickstarter before I you asked me to write on it, and what attracted me to it was the art because um, there was the the one with the poppies for Flanders Fields, and my that was my grandfather's favorite poem, and so like that just pulled me right in, and the art just evokes that feeling so strongly with me. Yeah. And that was actually a stretch goal. That was part of the original campaign because the hundredth anniversary of armistice day was happening during our campaign uh, for our first one. And we said, Oh, we, we have to do something. So we commissioned Charles to do that particular piece of uh, soldiers sitting in a field of poppies, looking off into the distance um, at something. And so like in that, that particular image, there's uh, you know, there there's figures out in the distance. You can kind of see silhouettes and none of the soldiers sitting in the field of poppies are armed in any way. And it's like, that's kind of uh, a, the dichotomy that we wanted to have between like the, um, the ominous onset of war and these people that all they want is peace. And it was, it was a great piece and Charles really delivered. Because I mean, World War One was horrific, and um, one of the reasons why Armistice Armistice Day was founded and continually used to remind us of why this whole time period was horrific. Um, why add in the occult and dark powers into it? That was one of the elements that that we wanted to add as a not only as a, a business decision um, because number one horror games are going to sell more than historical games. But we had a historical game that we wanted to, that we, we wanted a message to get across and a horror element is going to kind of leverage that and help uh, sell that, that product. So from a business decision, that was one decision, one, one decision we made, but to incorporate the two, um, it really came down to the art and the kind of game that we wanted to, we wanted to play ourselves. So when we, we started looking at Charles art, it started as an inktober thing that he was doing. He was doing a new piece every day. We were following him. We had done some work with him in the past with wild skies. And I said, Charles, this stuff is great. I'm following it. Matt's following it. We want to do something with it. And he said, absolutely. And so we've kind of partnered up to, to do this and some future stuff. Well, he, um, when we started looking at the direction that a lot of the art was going, we said, oh, yeah, we want to be able to tell, the, tell stories in World War I, but it would, be, it would be great to be able to use some of these supernatural elements to just amplify the tales and real-world effects of the dehumanization that, the, that war has on people. Um, to the point where in our game, uh, your deck of cards, it, it, it just uses standard six sided dice and a standard deck of playing cards. You can, we have custom dice and custom cards and things like that, but you can use seriously anything that you find in like your junk drawer, or your house. Um, but we wanted those, those cards to represent your personality and your memories. And so therefore, as you, use those cards to gain certain effects in the game, such as 
healing or to reroll a die or to activate a whisper, which is what we call spells. Um, if you, if you use those cards, um, you're losing a little bit of yourself each time. Now, mechanically, uh, you don't necessarily have to uh, do anything other than spend the card, but narratively, I always recommend that people use those cards and kind of declare what they are. During one of our steps in play, it's called the journey. It's like what happens before a mission, like as you're really going to the main thing. You do spend cards and you kind of talk about what your character is thinking or feeling as you're on your way there or you see something and it maybe reminds you of something back home. Uh, but also in play, in, especially when we play it at conventions, I always say like, oh, yeah, now you, you know, you discard your nine of hearts uh, in order to, you know, to reroll that die. So what do you forget? Oh, well. The nine of hearts represents my daughter's third birthday. So that memory is completely erased from my mind. Um, or we had one time at a convention in a convention game, a player who had built his, his character around his personality around the, these, the, all these Arthurian legends and things that like his father would always teach him or you know, taught him and read to him as a kid, as a boy, he always thought about sitting on his father's lap in his study and, and reading these books. And he always remembered that. And then like throughout the game, as he was spending cards, he was like, I don't remember what my father's library smelled like. I no longer remember the feel of the leather grain of that book. And so like that one character, he, he said this is what it was going to be at, player, at at character creation. And throughout that entire game, whenever he would discard a card, people were like, oh, that that just – that wrecks me, you know? And so we wanted to be able to include that dehumanization aspect of the game in a tangible and narrative way. So I think that's one of the most fantastic things about um... – how the mechanics of this this setting fit the setting is there what i mean taking taking out the setting part what is the system for never going home because you've mentioned cards and dice and stuff like that but what is like the base basic system so the system itself is called the plus one system and it as i said it uses a standard deck of cards and uh, up to five d6 you know just standard six-sided dice and the plus one system is you're trying to get a certain number of successes, you know, you reach a target number of a certain number of successes whenever you do a check. All right. So, hey, I'm in this, uh, I'm in this study and I know there's a map that I need to find. Like my, all the evidence has led me here. Now I need to find it. So I'm going to use my investigation skill. And so um, as you build your character, each skill is also tied to an attribute. So um, your attribute is going to tell you how many times you can manipulate a roll. And the skill tells you how many dice you can roll. So if I have three, um, if I have three dice in investigation and I have, um, you know, uh, let's say four in my, um, my smarts, which is what it's tied to, then I will be able to roll those three dice and manipulate that roll 
four times. Let's say the target number is two. So I'm looking for two successes. That's a five or a six on a D6. I'll roll those three dice for my investigation skill. And I get a, I get a four, I get a one, and I get a two. All right. So I'm going to use my first point of smarts to turn that four into a five. I can increase a pip. Uh, so boom, there's one of my two successes. Um, then I'm going to, uh, I'm going to re-roll any number of dice. So I'm going to use my second one, uh, and I'm going to re-roll. Now, when you re-roll, you generally have to keep it. Um, so you can, uh, spend it and re-roll. I got those, those two extra dice and I get a five and a six. Boom. I got three successes. Great. We're all set. You can also use those. Uh, you can also use those um, those attribute points um, to modify the role even before you start. So let's say, well, I need to roll an investigation check, and I don't have the investigation skill. Well, you still have four in the in smarts, so you can spend one point to buy the skill that you don't even have. Say like, okay, now I need that. I'm gonna you know use just my general smarts to say like. Well, yeah, I'm smart enough to have a good idea. I'm going to look in the desk, you know, um, and then you can add dice to the roll. So now I spent my first point to buy a die. I'm going to spend three extra points to buy three dice and I'm going to roll that and, you know, see what I get. So it, it really does, uh, give the, uh, it, it really helps out players uh, in those, especially in those those one shot games where you say anyone can roll any skill, you just have to spend points to use it. Now, if you want to, uh, then you actually bring those cards into it. Like I said, those cards represent your memories, and those cards can be used to do uh, to do any of that stuff. You can use one of those plus one effects um, using those cards. Uh, they're also used, as I said, for healing. So you can discard cards. To heal an attribute point uh, when you're in uh, when you're in combat, or I'm sorry, outside of combat, or you can also use it to uh, negate damage you would take one point of damage while in combat. Um, and they're also the cards can also be used as uh, to activate whispers, magical abilities, and they're also used to level up your character. Let's say you have you know, you want to increase one of your attribute points, then you're going to, you know, discard a certain number of cards that you collect throughout each mission um, if you survive and you level up your character that way. Um, one of the things that, one of the things that we also have is where we incorporated is the fact that your attributes are your life. We don't have hit points or anything like that. So you have three attributes, your brawn, your smarts, and your guts. And so if you really wanted to, when you build a character, you have 10 points to distribute among those three stats. You could really min-max your character and say, like, I'm going to put eight in brawn, one in smarts, and one in guts. Like, I'm a big dude, I'm dumb as a rock, and I'm a chicken, but if you make me hit you, it's going to hurt really bad because I can modify that role a lot. Um, but if at any point any of your stats reaches zero – then you die. So there are certain things that can affect your guts. You know, a monster could have a, a whisper or an effect that affects your guts or affects your smarts. And then 
you just, you, you will die. Um, as you take damage in a particular attribute, you just, you track that on your character. So let's say you did have eight brawn and you were shot and you lost three body damage, then you would lose three in brawn. So next time you rolled, you would only be able to manipulate five times as opposed to eight times. So, uh, it really encourages finding new and different ways to approach a problem rather than charging that machine gun nest. It's a really cool, really innovative system. And looking at some of the previous Kickstarter rewards, you have some pretty cool stuff with like custom dice, unique playing cards that people can use. And it really just helps uh, enhance the flavor of the game if you have those, which is uh, really super cool. Yeah, like that's one of those things too. Like uh, we have all the all the dice templates and everything and we're trying to uh, to get a reprint of those uh, those custom dice we have new custom dice on our current kickstarter uh but we also have we have those custom cards as well and those custom cards are going to be like an evergreen product that we have um we're going to take those to conventions all the time and we're going to have those available available on our our e-shop and things like that um but you're right it it really enhances that when you can put those in the in the world uh and the reason why we really wanted to do that not only for simplicity's sake of having those cards and dice but those are among the things that soldiers in the trenches had all the time they had cards and dice and we said oh yeah we we're definitely going to lean into that um and so we wanted them to also look kind of like artifacts from the world the cards uh are they look like they may have be water damaged and they're just like drawn on. Um, and then the, one of our custom sets of dice from the original Kickstarter was kind of this, um, this like beige color that in, in etched. So it, it etched in black. So it looked like it was, you know, you know, carved soapstone or, um, you know, in, in, in colored in with charcoal or something. That was kind of the effect we wanted and uh, I think it, it it turned out great for uh, the end result. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And yeah, because we were just talking about the uh, Kickstarter a little bit, and we're actually running out of time as well. Chig, do you want to kind of kick us off uh, talking about the uh, upcoming campaign dossiers Kickstarter? Oh, absolutely, Mike. Um, so as somebody who uh, already has the Never Going Home rulebook, uh, why, why should I get excited about the uh, campaign dossiers Kickstarter? So uh, first and foremost, if you just have the uh, Never Going Home rulebook, awesome, number one, and uh, thank you. Um, well, I, I also have the Book of Whispers and the uh, the uh, monster book, the Book of uh, Tome Corrupted, of Corrupted Beasts. Beasts. Yeah, yeah. I got them all at Gen Con last year. Great oh, <laughs> sweet. Yeah, well, then if you have all that stuff, that's, that's fantastic. Um, but even if you only had the core book, the good thing about this Kickstarter is the fact that, you know, you can get the stuff from the earlier Kickstarter. If you, if you really wanted to, to pick up things piecemeal. Um, but we also have, oh, I'm sorry, but we also have these three campaign books. Um, and as I said, like these three campaign books, each cover a new area, uh, a new theater of, uh, of the war, uh, as it's, it's going on. Um, and so it's each one is going to have more setting information. Each one is going to have new options for players. Uh, so they're going to have, you know, new whispers, uh, maybe new weapons. They're going to have new uh, adversaries, new skills. Um, 
there's rules in there for narrators. So there's cold weather rules that that's going to be in blood on the snow, which is the Russia book, which is actually crystal is the, uh, one of the lead writer, the lead writer on it. Um, and you know, so these are the things that, that bring new flavor to the world and to the setting. So if you decide, yes, I want to include that stuff in you know, Northern France or Germany, you know, now it's winter time. We have the cold weather rules. You can do that. You can port all of that stuff over. And we just wanted to give a lot of players and narrators those options. Um, and also it, it has new campaign rules uh, or new, new campaign setups. So like, Hey, we're going to have these six connected campaigns or six connected missions that, uh, your unit can go on and you influence everything as you go along each one of these missions. Um, it's, it's going to be a lot of fun because it is a lot, uh, th there's a, it's a lot different than the, the first campaign where each one of those, uh, those missions that's included in any of those books can be played as a one-off, but these actually connect to tell a larger, um, more immersive story. So I think if that's kind of the kind of stuff that you're itching for and you want more stuff in the setting, then this will really just carry that home for you. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Hey, Crystal, uh, since you worked on this a little bit, do you want to kind of talk about the Blood in the Snow uh, dossier and give us some uh, cool insights into how that was developed and, uh, <laughs> you know, what kind of attracted you to this part of the setting or, or real world history? Okay, so... Um... <laughs> when I first started writing, I, I gave the, for never going home, I gave the caveat of, I've, I'm not a like super history nerd or anything like that. I'm, I like history and I like hearing about it, but I've never really immersed myself in it. And so I got to pick out some things that were really kind of interesting to me um, to write on for the first books. And then they pitched, um, the Russia setting and the more I thought about it the more I was like oh that's actually kind of cool Russia's vast and the history is like crazy you know human sacrifice and misery mixed in with snow and um, distance and a lot of folklore um, and I'm like oh that'd be really kind of cool to to kind of bring into the setting and um, it takes place um, leading up to the Russian Revolution. So in actual history, it takes place after the Battle of Psalms when the, um, the original setting, everything blew up and the others were released into the world. So I um, am introducing like, how did the others get into Russia before all of this, the, you know, the veil between these worlds weekend and um getting to talk about how they influence the people of russia and the folklore um and even the politics and um how you know people themselves end up becoming these harbingers of the others and carrying out their corruption um and causing a, a lot of damage interesting no, that's really cool so it gives you kind of a, a more unique take uh because it looks at an area where the others have had more influence for a little bit longer than say you know northern france that area yeah so it, yeah it, it basically 
just shows um, how even small pockets of, you know, this, these, the others are influencing everything else around it. One of the cool things I'd like to add on to that, Crystal, if you don't mind, one of the, one of the cool things that, that, of course. Uh, that we're able to explore with the, these dossiers and as we expand and flesh out the world of never going home is that the others have kind of existed in some form or another, like parallel to our world for long periods of, of history. Um, and so like, for example, uh, in bones in the sand, which is the, the one about the, the battle of Gallipoli, uh, that actually takes place before the events of never going home. So when, when the others were really, released into uh that corruption from the 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 other side of the veil was released into this uh into this world um so like and we even hint at it in the original main book that uh the ottoman empire knew there was something there like something had to allow humanity to explore the these kind of occult leanings that they had in order to trigger the 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 the, the thinning of that veil. Um, so yeah, so we can, we'll be able to explore other events in human history. Uh, and, and people might be able to look at it and point back to, you know, maybe things in mythology and ancient mythology and say like, Oh, wait a second. That might be, uh, an L a period in which the veil, you know, something maybe have been trying to reach out from the other side of the veil and corrupt humanity and, and do all this stuff. But now, after the fact, you know, and uh, you see that corruption kind of pouring through and and modifying people and turning animals into monsters and things like that. Now you actually say, "Oh, I see what I see what happened. I see the consequences of our actions. Why did we do this?" Nice. Yeah. Really cool. Really exciting. Brandon, uh, what kind of like cool stretch goals do we have for the Kickstarter? Uh, is there anything good that you have lined up? Yeah, actually, uh, so not only do we have you know more um, more information because right now we have these three books. All right, this is a this campaign is actually the largest ask we've ever had for uh, for a a campaign, mostly because we are doing three books at the same time, um, not just one at a time. Because we could have done that, but it would have stretched this out and getting the material to. Uh, the fans and backers and supporters longer than we wanted to. So we said, all right, well, we're going to ask for a larger amount up front and give more material boom right away. Um, but we have enough stuff in our stretch goals that are already planned and listed. Uh, and we have, we have plans for beyond what is listed right now, but uh, there's enough, enough that's already listed that if we reach those goals, not only will, uh, backers and supporters get the three books that they uh, pledge for and support for, but they'll also get a fourth book uh, full of material, uh, uh, which has new new rules for like a bestial transformation. It's gonna have two brand new whisper paths. It's gonna have uh, you know six more missions which connect. So it's effectively you're getting a fourth book as part of that. Uh, your initial pledge. Um, we also have three additional physical things which are are listed. Uh, one is corruption tokens because right now in the game, if you take a corruption chance, you draw from the deck, 
you pass it to the narrator. Narrator looks at it uh, and logs whether it gives you a corruption point, and then you look at it and logs whether it gets you a corruption point. But that's, you always keep that secret. That's between you and the narrator. Your other players don't know how corrupt you are. But we're including these corruption tokens, which on one side just look like a you know a normal coin or or artifact, and on the other side might show that you're corrupt and might not. So you draw from this pile. You look to see if you're corrupted, and then you might have a pile of coins in front of you. So Crystal may have 12 coins, so I know she's had a lot of chances to be corrupted, but she may only have one corruption point. But that's going to that's gonna you know lead me to assume that Crystal's messing with the party if something fails or if she doesn't really lean in and help the party when we really need something. Um, so we, we have these, it's, it's another tangible element. So you don't necessarily just have to record it on your character sheet, but you get to have something else. We're also including a, a, a neoprene mat, uh, which will be uh, primarily for the deck of cards that we use for, for journey. It's, we have a mechanic, which is included in one of the books, which is called the morale pool, uh, which is where, you know, you as a unit can, instead of drawing cards to yourself, you can contribute cards to the morale pool to keep the unit, um, you know, motivated and fighting and going well, going strong. And we're going to use that, uh, that map for that. And it's going to have brand new art, gorgeous art from Charles Ferguson, Avery, as well as a rules reference, kind of like we, we have a rules reference card that we use for, or that we include in all of our decks, our custom decks, but we're going to have that information there. Like, Here's the core of the plus one system. Here's what you can do with cards. You know, so all of that will be on that mat for players to uh, to always have easy access to. Um, and then the the third physical goal we have is a uh, is a custom box, um, which you know if you look at like the D and D starter sets or um, you see some of these these old like bookshelf games, uh, it's going to be a nine by twelve box like that but it's going to be a place where you can store all of your never going home stuff your dice your cards you can roll up your neoprene mat and put it in there so if we make it to that goal uh it's going to be a a gorgeous sturdy stable nine by twelve box that you can put right on your shelf nice that's awesome and another thing i want to bring up is that uh one of the cool things about this kickstarter is that you can get the uh all the old or previous uh traditionally printed books as well as uh one of the uh kickstarter uh backing levels uh which is awesome because i think it's sold out at both uh gen con and pax unplugged so this is oh, yeah. another way to get it well and, and pax unplugged was that was especially surprising for me because we didn't know what to expect at PAX. And so that went up with the, with the IGDN, it sold out in the first day at PAX Unplugged. Uh, and it was to the point where I mean, I'm in Louisville, it would have been a 10 and a half hour drive for me to get up to Philly. And I seriously considered loading up the car and driving up there, driving 10 hours there, taking a nap and driving home. And my wife was like, you should not do that. <laughs> so, but no, it, yeah, it was, it was a very pleasant surprise, but yeah, if you, uh, if you'll be able to get all the stuff that uh, was included there um, as well as uh, our campaign journals, uh, which are, you know, uh, it's a bound uh, saddle stitched um, care book that has eight character sheets in it, as well as uh, pages for, uh, you know, writing down campaign notes or, uh, or how your whispers work and things like that. It's, uh, you can get that through the Kickstarter as well. 
cool. Awesome. Awesome. I just had one last question, Brandon, because I was looking at some of the other wet ink games uh, products that are out there, and I got really excited about this one that you have called Tenebria. Could you just give us like a quick two minute uh, rundown on that game before we uh, finish up the episode here? Yeah, so so that game, uh, Tenebria, is was done by uh, one of the writers that we actually had work on Never Going Home, and he's local to Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, he did the writing and all of the art for that book. His name is Stephen Wu, and he's a great guy, and he's absolutely uh, mind-blowingly talented when it comes to both writing and uh, writing and art and his game design and everything. So that is it, – it takes place uh, during and slightly after the fall of Rome, the Roman Empire. So this is – you are the remnant of – of uh, this fallen empire and you're living in, you've actually just been brought into this uh, small town in uh, mainland Europe um, and you are uh, called Tenebria and you are trying to uh, reinforce, build and develop this community and eke out a survival or uh, eke out a living uh, as survivors of this, what you can only imagine as like the worst apocalypse i mean like your entire civilization has collapsed and you're beset on all sides by um the what you have been told and believed to be uh a barbarous society uh and, and tribes of, of of people around you and so it uses the core of the plus one system everything with those dice and cards uh and how you kind of build your your characters um but uh when we give our designers uh, leeway with the plus one system. It's always with the cards. So we say, yeah, when you build, build and you roll your skills and your attributes, this is the part that needs to stay the same. However, how you use cards in a game using plus one, you can do that however you want. So unlike never going home where cards represent your memories and your personality and uh, your humanity in Tenebria, cards represent resources that you bring back to the community so those are raw resources like you know food or books or scrolls or whatever that you bring that you can bring back and you can say like oh now i'm going to spend these resources now we have a blacksmith and that's great uh now we have a library and now we have an aqueduct you know things like that as we as you develop your your community but you also run the risk of having to give up those resources during gameplay. If you're familiar with the plus one system, it's a very easy learn. It's a very uh, easy uh, adaptation. And if you're not, it's also a great introduction because it actually walks you through character creation through gameplay. Um, Steven wrote a, a connected series of, of missions in there that walk you through your your first few uh your first few you know missions uh you build your character that way you learn new abilities that way and then it has a campaign in there and uh, once that campaign is over you can either continue uh in that that same uh, world and setting that you built or uh you can say man that was a great experience what can i do to maybe uh, use this system for my own settings. So it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. And Steven is, 
going to be doing some more stuff for us in the very near future. Awesome. Yeah, it sounds like such a cool game. Great concept as well to make an apocalyptic game during a essentially actual historical apocalypse. I don't think anyone's thought of doing that before, and you guys just did it. <laughs> yeah, you see most mostly uh, post-apocalyptic settings are like, you know, near future and, you know, it's like, oh, Mad Max and stuff like that. But like, no, this was for the the people of the time. This was an apocalypse for them and it was a disaster. And uh, yeah, it was um, something that, you know, as with with our his, history roots that we really like to use in our games, it was absolutely something we could not pass up. Well, I'm sold. Yeah, definitely. I'll take it. <laughs> and that's available on uh, drive through RPG, you say? It is available on drive through RPG and that it's available as a, a PDF or a print on demand. So you can, if you want a physical copy of it, you're more than welcome to, to do that. Yeah, definitely. And uh, also very affordable. I think it was only like $10 for a PDF. So you, yep. you've taken that lesson from Palladium of having very affordable RPG books. I like it. Again, one of the things that we really wanted to do, we wanted to make sure that any of those in that line, uh, that line of games, because that one is, Never Going Home is a seven seven inch by ten inch book. It's a seven by ten like book. Uh, but Tenibria and uh, some others that we're going to do in that kind of plus one line are going to be six by nine. Not only so they can be affordable for people who want to try something new at a convention, just want to grab a book and say like, yeah, this really uh, whets my appetite. I but also you know when we develop it and put it on uh, drive through, so uh, it's at an affordable uh, price point. So they can they try whatever they want. Yeah, definitely. All right, cool. Well, uh, Brandon, we're definitely going to put uh, links to the Never Going Home uh, campaign dossiers Kickstarter in our show notes and uh, on our Facebook page, etc., so that people can check it out and uh, back it because it's a really awesome setting, really awesome game, very, very inspirational. Now, if people want to get in contact with you or Winning Games, uh, what's the best way to do that? Uh, where is like your social media contacts? So our uh, largest social media presence right now and uh, how you can stay in best touch with us is on Facebook, uh, just Wedding Games. Uh, when you're on Facebook, we actually have the, you'll be able to see the Never Going Home campaign dossiers as our like, main banner right now. So uh, yeah, Wedding Games on Facebook. We have a, a pretty active Instagram um, uh, site or an Instagram profile. So you can go to follow us on Instagram. We'll show you uh you know, art at either as it comes in or for promoting something specific. Uh, but it actually focuses on a lot of the, uh, the art that we, we come in and we love, we actually pride ourselves on working with some of the most talented artists in the industry. Um, and that is something that we're going to continue, uh, doing as we move forward with other products. Uh, so our Instagram is a very, uh, good way to follow if you're really interested in the art side of it. Um, both of them are going to uh, be very active uh, as we move forward in 2020 because we have a lot of really great things planned. Crystal has been privy to some of those plans uh, and will be, uh, I'm sure, uh, involved in uh, one or more of those as we move forward as long as, you know, she thinks we're okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's great to hear. 
And uh, of course, uh, we are Dark Days Radio. You can check us out uh, at uh, you know Facebook.com slash Dark Days Radio, uh, www.darker-days.org. And we are on Twitter at Darker Days Radio. If you want to send us an email, you can uh, do that at uh, darkerdaysradio at gmail.com. Brandon, Chig, Crystal, thank you so much for uh, you know coming on for this episode on a uh, you know Saturday afternoon. Uh, definitely some great stuff and uh, really awesome to hear about winning games and all the great stuff you're doing. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, I know you know sometimes I tend to ramble, but I love being able to talk about gaming with anyone and anyone who listen. Yeah, no, it was all incredibly interesting. And to all the listeners out there, take it easy and have a good afternoon. This has been an episode of Darker Days Radio. Special thanks to Occam's Laser for the intro, outro, and new bumper music from their hit album, Nine Circles. Check out the rest of their work at occamslaser.bandcamp.com. Mm-hmm.